0: Welcome back for another episode of No Truce Barred, the best up and coming podcast on the internet. And I'm your host, Hoy Kawaku Timmons. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hoyt H O Y T underscore Kawaku K W A K U underscore Timmons. That's O-N-S. And make sure you're following me on all three of those social media outlets for the newest information related to No Truths Bard, to my thoughts about uh, society, various social critiques, um, various pieces of information that I disseminate on all of my platforms. So definitely make sure you're following me. Also, if you see any of the flyers, if you see uh, any particular episodes that you like, um, definitely share the content, you know. Inbox it to somebody that you know, share it on your IG story. Any and all support is definitely appreciated, and never ever ever do I take any of your support for granted to all of those who've listened to any of the previous episodes. And also, if you wanted to, if you want to listen to any of the previous 26 episodes, You can go to SoundCloud, whether you have the app or if you want to go directly to the website, or you can go to Spotify and listen to all of the previous 26 episodes. And tonight is episode 27. First of all, I want to say to all of my listeners, I pray that you guys are staying safe out there because things are truly critical. Things are really dangerous right now. And the current situation that's going on in our society, it really prompted me to make this episode tonight because there are many concerns, very valid and legitimate concerns, and they are, there are concerns that are based in hearsay and based in conspiracy theory. Now, there's often a negative connotation with the word conspiracy because automatically we have a inclination to automatically make anything that we kind of feel is... Uh, a conspiracy in nature synonymous with pseudo-information. And that's not necessarily always the case. This episode tonight, this is episode 27. And this episode is called 1984 in 2020. And I want to start off this episode. I normally never do this because I really like to jump right in. But I want to start this episode off with a quote from... The individual that inspired the title of tonight's podcast and whose work has changed the world and changed the way we look at various states and various political paradigms. And that particular individual is George Orwell. And George Orwell, he has many quotes, many very brilliant And prolific quotes that have been attributed to him. But tonight, or whenever you listen to this, I know I'm saying this uh, tonight. But whenever you actually listen to this particular episode, morning, evening, what have you. I want you to remember this. And I quote. In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I want to repeat that one more time. In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And one of the problems is that right now we're going through the pandemic, primarily due to COVID-19, better known as the coronavirus. And this virus started in Wuhan, China. And from there, it's made its way around the rest of the world. I believe so far, Italy has one of the highest death rates as a result of this particular virus, after China. And the death rates and the infection rates are rising here in the U.S. as well. And due to the uh, due to the preponderant nature of this particular situation and the preponderance of this particular virus, many many states across the country. Uh, have decided to quarantine, and actually, it's a federal mandate at this point, but various states are enacting the quarantine in their own particular manner. Um, If you're listening to this particular podcast, and you're not in the state of Virginia, uh, our governor, Ralph Northam, he issued a quarantine that basically prohibits people from Congregating any sort of large gatherings, uh, anybody that's going into a store like any sort of store. So, for example, like a 7-Eleven or a Wawa, if you're not in Virginia, Wawa's kind of are more grandiose version of a 7-Eleven. If you're going into a Walmart, if you're going into a restaurant, you're not allowed to have more than 10 people in that particular establishment. And if you are, parks have been made off limits, although on my way home from work, I've seen people at the park, uh, I believe also shopping malls, hair salons, uh, barbershops, many businesses and many small businesses, many mom and pop businesses have been adversely affected by this situation. And so what's starting to happen in not just only Virginia, but you know, New York is, is, is a lot worse. Uh, California is worse. Many other states are a lot more strict with their quarantine In juxtaposition with the state of Virginia. But what's beginning to happen it, via social distancing is social isolation. And now this is something that the listeners, you can go and verify, but I believe in New York City. If you're out at certain places or beyond a certain curfew, once again, I'm not exactly sure if there is a curfew in effect in New York City, but I've come across information that you could be charged with a ticket if you're found or you're somewhere where you, you really, it's not like an essential, not like a grocery store, or this isn't your a particular pa- particular place of employment that you need to be at they're issuing tickets. So, um, let me get to the point. The reason why I'm bringing all of this up and the reason why I call this episode 1984 in 2020, because there's a rising fear of a potential police state of, uh, of the advent of a totalitarian government within the borders of the United States of America, which will in turn spit directly in the face of democracy. But we really don't have a democracy. We have a republic because even our founding fathers were against mob rule. So we have a republic. But in essence, if this were to establish itself, it would spit directly in the face of our constitution, our freedoms as citizens of the United States of America, and various other inalienable rights. And what is totalitarianism? So we think back, because I'm a person that uh, I love history. Uh, I'm a historian, a historian of sorts. I'm, 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 uh, I don't have a doctorate. Uh, but when I look at history, what exactly is totalitarianism and what, and what do we think of? So I, I talked about George or- Orwell. If you look at George Orwell... He has two prolific books that he's often cited with. One is Animal Farm, which is a great book. And he actually uses Stalin's Russia as an influence uh, for this animal farm. And you have various stratifications of society that are supposed to be critiques um, within this farm. And then the other. Uh, other book, and once again, also to all my people that are huge George Orwell fans, I didn't mean to kind of just, you know, run over Animal Farm, but it's, it's a really prolific book and a really powerful book, and I actually might come back in a later podcast and actually kind of do a review of that book, but I'm actually, I want to kind of get to the gist of it, so... You have 1984, so 1984 is a book that I feel is a huge caveat towards a totalitarian government. Now, if you study George Orwell and you look at his history, uh, he was often uh, a a stark, a staunch opponent um, of totalitarianism. And so you have to you have to wonder like what were the different variables and the different things going on politically that would actually inspire him to want to write a book that was fictive but yet predicated on the assumption of the turpitude of uh, of uh, totalitarian regimes. So who do we have like one of the the, the glaring ones that I really don't have to give. Uh, a deep example of is Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany. That's one. And we all know how that particular story went and the, the damage that was done under such a fascist regime. Um, another one, to a lesser extent, who was a contemporary of Hitler was Benito Mussolini, who became the dictator, the fascist dictator of Italy. And if you look at him... Under him, a lot of Italian scholars and historians actually had to flee Italy. It's kind of the same way how uh, some Jewish and German intellectuals had to flee Nazi Germany under the rule of Adolf Hitler. Because when you have a fascist regime, their whole point is to, to tailor the propaganda, to tailor the literature, to tailor the information, to justify, justify that particular, uh, paradigm that they've set up for their respective countries. And the, the funny thing with, uh, Mussolini in comparison with Hitler was that originally he was a socialist. Um, but when he came to power, he definitely embraced more, uh, totalitarian, um, tenets, of his society, uh, excuse me, to implement in his society, pardon me, folks, I'm a little parched because I'm trying to spill my spirit here when I talk to you guys, I'd have a bit of water real quick, but that's another form of totalitarianism that we've seen in the past, Um, you know, you look at at Joseph Stalin, who, uh, he kind of, the the issue with Stalin is that he he really embraced the teachings of Karl Marx, and when you when you look at a, a figure like Marx, uh, Marx Marx and Friedrich Engels, they wrote the Communist Manifesto, and one of the issues, you know, because I've read the book, and one of the issues with 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 it. Is basically you're trying to establish essentially what is a utopian society. And, and some of the critiques that the Communist Manifesto makes about capitalism are valid, you know. And that's not to say that I'm a Marxist nor a communist, but I'm not so uh, I'm not so obsequious to one particular side of the argument where I can't acknowledge a truth. That may be an argument that I necessarily don't embrace, but nonetheless, there's a truth there. But the problem, one of the biggest issues with the Communist Manifesto and Karl Marx is that there was really no guideline and no framework on how to actually realistically implement this sort of society. And unfortunately, many of the people that embraced that that particular teaching ended up doing some real heinous and tyrannical things within their various societies. So, you know, uh, you know, Pol Pot was a, uh, a person that, um, embraced Marxist teachings. Joseph Stalin was another one as well. Um, Mao Zedong of China, um, was another one as well. And I think because so many so much atrocity is tied to those particular individuals, especially with Stalin. When you study uh, the, 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 the Soviet Union and, and the use of the gulags that were in place and how many people were killed and, you know, um, they talk about Hitler killing 6 million uh, Jews, which is a, a, a awful thing and extremely heinous. And just kind of hard to comprehend, but Joseph Stalin, you know, also had, was responsible for the deaths of 20 million people under his regime in the Soviet Union. Um, and he, and, and he came, I believe he came in in contact first with the, um, with a lot of Karl Marx's teachings in the Masame Dasi, and that was a, a secret organization Um, where they really embraced a lot of Marx's Marx's, uh, teachings. um, And they were heavily influenced by the Bolsheviks, which you would later get uh, Vladimir Lenin out of that particular movement um, when they had the revolution. I believe it was 1917 uh, when that revolution happened. And so that's kind of one of the forms of totalitarianism that you get uh, from an uh, individual like Joseph Stalin, and uh, another thing with 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 Stalin is that um, he, you know, war and states are really dynamic. So at one point, when World War II was happening, you know, he was an ally against the Axis powers. You know, but as political situations change and different dynamics happen, allies can become enemies, which you know later after the Conference of Yalta uh, will result ultimately in what would become and what we would know as the Cold War um, between the Soviet and uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, but anyway. Those were the different factors around during the time of George Orwell's life. Um, and matter of fact, one of the places where he really encountered a lot of Stalin, uh, Stalin-esque rhetoric and leaning movements and political parties, uh, was when he went to Spain to volunteer, because if you look, um, uh, what was the year? I'm so sorry. I, I apologize, people. I'm not really the best with years. But General Francesco Franco wanted to start a, a fascist regime in Spain, and he was definitely a fascist uh, totalitarian leader. And uh, George Orwell actually came to Spain to speak out uh, against that particular uh, totalitarian regime and uh, and uh, and to volunteer to to uh, Fight against that particular regime um, through protest, through literature, and through other means as well. And so he was constantly bombarded, whether directly or indirectly, with all of these variants and all of these different forms of totalitarianism. And what does totalitarianism do? They snuff out hope for people. They They cause people really to just become automatons for the state. Now, people can argue that you can also see that in the West and in capitalist societies. Well, now, this is for a different podcast, but what I will argue, at least on the behalf, pardon me, my sinuses is acting up, guys. But what I will argue, at least on the behalf of capitalism, is that within our society, there is the opportunity for upward mobility. There is opportunity for individualism to express yourself independent of the state, to have ideas that may castigate whomever's in charge at the moment. You know, for example, uh, I'm not a fan of President Donald Trump, or a lot of people won't even call him that. They'll just say 45. I'm not a fan of him. And at least here in America... I can openly I can openly express my discontent with that political administration and not have to worry about being jailed. I don't have to worry about being killed. I don't have to worry about my family you know being arrested or put somewhere where I can't find them, where I can't find them or that I, I don't see them ever again. That's at least here now. If you want to be a little bit more technical, we have had people here in our country who did experience certain things because they were, at their particular time, politically radical. For example, one prime example I love to use is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I feel that his image has really been, uh, it's been made digestible to the common person now, but this is a man that was very radical politically. Was targeted by the FBI. Um, also had dealings with other black uh, radicals, and and that's a I'm gonna stop using that word because that's it has it's a lot of bad connotations, and that word is really loaded. But this is a person who uh, did the foreword in uh, Robert F. Williams' books, who's who was from North Carolina, and his uh, advocacy of black people arming themselves was something that would later go on and influence the Black Panther Party. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. actually did the foreword in his book called Negroes with Guns. And Robert F. Williams actually had to go to Cuba and he did a a radio station. He did a radio show there where he would continue to teach. He would continue to inform um, while he was outside of the United States as well. And so we kind of have this... uh, image of Dr. Martin Luther King that isn't necessarily accurate, and that's a different a different topic for a different podcast that I definitely would, uh, I plan on talking about in the future. Um, but the point is, is that yes, there have been people here during the McCarthyism, uh, people that have been blacklisted, for example, people like Paul Robeson, um, who was blacklisted uh, here during the, the, the time of McCarthyism. You know, um, believe it or not, uh, actor and actress who are both deceased now, Ozzy and Ozzy Davis and Ruby Dee experienced the same thing. So it's not to say that at certain points in our history, if you had a dissenting opinion politically that necess- that wasn't necessarily part of the status quo—you were 100% at liberty to express yourself. And then racism has and is. And, and probably will be for the foreseeable future, a huge issue and a huge barrier um, to people being able to really critique and castigate things like police corruption, the pipe, the prison to school pipeline, um, mass incarceration, and other various forms of systemic racism as well. So we do have those problems here, but is it to the extent of a Stalin, Stalin Russia? Is it to the extent? of a uh, 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 Francoist Spain, is it to the extent of a Pol Pot Cambodia? It definitely isn't. And that's the issue, you know? And so when we're here and we have all of these different states and every, you know, all of these states are under quarantine. Many of these states are prohibiting people, you know, from meeting, um, gathering, social isolation, social distancing, and another concern is people are really scared of martial law. And I want to bring up, um, one person I I definitely want to bring up is Edward Snowden. And if you can remember, Edward Snowden is the whistleblower who uh, spoke about the NSA wiretapping calls of millions of Americans. And he actually had to go to exile. And I think currently he's in Russia, I believe. I I think he's in Moscow, actually. And he brought it to the attention, the things that the NSA were doing illegally. But the reality is, is that we can actually go all the way back to the Patriot Act that came in under George W. Bush. And these were the first things to impede upon the privacy and the freedom and the liberties of Americans. I think Thomas Jefferson said, or I want to say Benjamin Franklin, watch everybody correct me, but there's a quote that I love. And the quote that I love states that the person that's willing to sacrifice freedom for stability deserves neither. And that's the truth. And so now I'm about to go in my conspiracy bag a little bit. This is where I start to... to, I think I can hear you guys over there on the conspiracy aisle. Because whenever you look at a traumatic situation that affects the public, pick whatever you want. But I'm going to start at September September 11th, 2001. You have a traumatic event. We follow up that traumatic event... With war. We then follow up. That traumatic event. With a Patriot Act. Because. We're protecting. American citizens. From. Terrorists. Okay. So then it becomes. What are you willing to give up. To stay safe. Will you let us. Survey you. Well, well, wait a minute, we're, 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 we're going to do surveillance, but this is for your own good, this is for your own protection, this is all to keep you safe. And matter of fact, as much as people love Barack Obama, Barack Obama actually extended a lot of parts of the Patriot Act under his presidency to further impede upon your freedom, your privacy, to collect more data, to collect more information on you. And this all ties back into some quasi form of totalitarianism and leading us towards a state where personal freedoms and liberties are being impeded upon and we're calling it protection our silence is our consent to the turpitude of what they're fucking doing to us i'm not calling for people to act erratic or radical or crazy I'm calling for for you to be astute. I'm calling for you to look at exactly what's going on. So then what happens? What's the next step? Edward Snowden uh, recently did an interview, and I love Edward Snowden, also uh, Julian Assange, because your patriotism... It's to your country and your people and not the government because the government is just people. Your patriotism is to your country and your people and not your government. Now, people are saying, oh, wait, don't say stuff like that or what have you. But what I mean by that is this. We've seen in various cases that I don't need to go into right now of unscrupulous things that our government has done. Now, is that to say the the whole political system? No. Is that to say everybody in the FBI? No. Is that to say everybody in the CIA? No. But the reality is, is that when you say the United States government, you're talking about something that's extremely complex really large, a lot of moving pieces, a lot of different people, a lot of different interests that are are congruently uh, working together at the same time. I'm a huge advocate of the vote. I think one of the vote is one of the most important things that we have. And if the vote wasn't important, the Ku Klux Klan wouldn't have tried to stop countless black people from voting uh, in the Jim Crow South. If the vote wasn't important. And even prior to that. um, Just around reconstruction. If the vote wasn't important. It wouldn't have happened then either. So I believe in the power of the vote. And that's where we have to vote in. People. That once again. You know I know the, the, the nihilistic people out there. And I know the people who are. Um, hey, the vote doesn't matter at all. I'm not voting. I'm going to stay home. It's bullshit because my vote doesn't count. But it does count because so billions of dollars go into getting votes every year. People just don't, under, well, during election years. People don't understand the amount of media, the amount of marketing, the amount of money that goes into getting your vote. It's imperative that we're vetting these candidates that are truly going to represent and be emblematic of the needs and the wants and the wishes of the people, and not just these corporations, and not just uh uh arms manufacturers, war you know, p- companies that make money off of war. This is where our vote comes in. And I'm sorry for going on that tangent, but the problem and the scary thing for me is this we're in this pandemic. They're telling us to socially isolate, to stay away from people. And I understand it. I get it. I know we have to do it. But you remember when they told us, they say, look, it's going to be two weeks and then we're going to start to get back to normal. Now, I do take in mind what the surgeon general was saying to us. I do keep in mind what Dr. Fauci is saying to us, because I believe, um, one of, the, one of the diagrams that was shown and which was terrifying to me is that if we do everything perfectly, so if we you know we do the perfect social distancing, social isolation, we quarantine, that even with that, if we flatten the curve as much as possible, you're talking about across the country, not just in one area or one city, across the country, you're talking about. At least 2,200 deaths a day once we get close to the peak. So that's if we do everything correctly. If we do everything right. If we do the quarantine. We're still predicted to get that. That's the crazy part to me. So I understand the social distancing. I understand all of it. But keep in mind, while we're having the social distancing, small mom and pop businesses are going under. People are unemployed and that employment rate is going to continue to go up week after week. People are scared. People are hungry. People are dying. And what do you think? What do you think is going to be the outcome of a lot of this? To me, I feel like a plausible outcome could be some form or some variant or just downright martial law. I could see it happening because we want safety. We want comfort so bad that we're willing to acquiesce to our own imprisonment, even if it's within our homes, just to have safety, just to say we are okay, Thereby serving as accomplices and facilitating a police state. That we all have to live under, going forward. And one of the one of the problems of this is that you know George Orwell, his form—if you read "1984," um, and you look at the form of totalitarianism that he actually described, his form of totalitarianism, I think, is more rooted in what he saw in the in the in the material world around him at that particular time i think our totalitarianism is going to be a lot more hybrid if it comes to fruition not saying that it will but if it comes to fruition it'll be a lot more hybridized than what he actually described in his book 1984 which he put out in 1949. Uh, He died of tuberculosis, I think, like a year later. Um, Or it might have been for 1947 that he put out, uh, 1984. But for him to put put a book out over half of a century ago, and for a lot of the information, a lot of the points that he made in that particular book to be relevant right now, it's just beyond crazy to me, you know, and, and one of the things that kind of galvanizes us as a society currently in the year 2020 to just release a lot of our freedoms is a lot of fear mongering. And if you look at the media, the media really perpetuates a lot of fear in people because you, you really don't get an equal balanced side of every story that you see. Um, it's a book that I read years ago I definitely would recommend this book it's a book by sociologist Barry Glasner, and the book is called The Culture of Fear and that book really opened my eyes up to and once again um, sometimes you have ideas and sometimes you have certain perspectives about various facets of society but when you see a scholastic take on it, it brings a little bit more validity to things that you can kind of just observe with common sense and just being able to analyze various things. So I'm not one of those people where I just want to run to and quote a book and uh, not necessarily give you my idea, but I only, I, I, I believe that when I do reference other materials, it just brings a little bit more validity to my own ideas. And that's why I I do it for the listeners. And I also want to encourage you to go and to look up this information on your own. But Barry Glassner, his book, one of the arguments that he's making is that our our media in the United States, one of the, the things with our media is that they make a lot of money, a lot of money off of your fear. The news if you look at and I don't care I don't care what news outlet is unless you are getting your news from independent media and that's really what I want to encourage throughout the next uh, several episodes that I do. I want to encourage everybody to uh, look up independent media, media because with MSNBC, NBC excuse me MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. Many of those outlets are either going to be left or right-leaning. Most of them aren't just going to disseminate the news to you. They're going to be leaning in, 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 uh, in either direction. And that's one of the problems. And then once we, we get there, we get into this whole political tribalism. And I want to I just show the hypocrisy really quick, and I, uh, I want to get back on the topic of the fear of the police state that many of us have right now, and rightfully so, but I want to talk about this briefly. Um, As many of you know, I am a huge Bernie Sanders fan. I am a Bernie Sanders supporter. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary, although unfortunately, uh, Vice President Joe Biden actually ended up winning Virginia, and congratulations to him as well uh, for being able to win Virginia, but... uh, I think that was... But I'm going to get into this, though. So, it's a lot I have to say about this, but I'm just going to try to make this as succinct as uh, possible. So, in the the last debate with Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, this is going to add to my point about the quote-unquote mainstream media. In the last debate with Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden... There was a particular point in the debate, two points in the debate. One point was, it's been this whole thing of, hey, it was the people that helped Joe Biden to bounce back. Because if you remember, going into, uh, he won the first three states, going into South Carolina, he was the front runner. And he was a person that was, you know, people really saying that, you know, Bernie was going to, you know, sweep this thing up, and so, one of my issues with this previous debate was that, like, the rhetoric we've been hearing, all oh, the people got behind Biden, and that's what it was, and Biden came back, and Biden did X, Y, and Z, but with Joe Biden, um, he has super PACs, he had billions of dollars, and not to mention... The fact that Amy Klobuchar and and Pete Buttigieg both had a conversation prior to Super Tuesday with Obama, mind you, we don't know what was said during the conversations, but they magically both decide to drop out of the race on Super Tuesday, and then both them and Beto O'Rourke decide to throw their support behind uh, Vice President Joe Biden. Neither here nor there. But... In the debate, Bernie had pointed out, well, you have billions of dollars and your super packs. Joe Biden then turns to Bernie Sanders and says, well, you have nine super PACs supporting you. Bernie says, I don't. If I do have them, list my nine super packs. And at this point, I think Joe Biden kind of mumbles something and is like, oh, well, well, you know, give me a break or whatever. He never really directly uh, answers or better yet, provide a rebuttal to Bernie. Um, so then, the other part of the debate that sticks out to me, and I'm this is all for a point, guys. I'm, just, trust me, it's not a tangent. The other point in the debate that really stuck out to me is that there's a video going around. Anybody with access to the internet or YouTube can clearly go and listen to this video. There's a video where Joe Biden overtly states that he does not want, excuse me, he wants to uh, cut Social Security. Everybody's seen this video. This video's been floating around the internet. Um, Anyone and their mother can see this video, right? Bernie Sanders pointed out, is there not a video of you online stating that you want to cut Social Security? He gave... Joe Biden, three different occasions to actually answer that particular um, accusation. Biden blatantly lied. Now, so those are the two points I'm pointing out. Now, if you follow CNN, and once again, let me say this, CNN does put out a lot of great news. They do. And I'm not going to get on the Trump bandwagon and call CNN fake news. They put out a lot of great news. But you can't deny they are rather left-leaning in what they disseminate to the public. Just being honest. And I think anybody that watches CNN would definitely agree with me on that particular observation. So when you look at that, now, whenever Donald Trump says something, um, I cannot remember the lady's name and, and I can see her face. But I'm going to move on to the people's names on CNN that I can't remember so uh, Andrew uh, Cuomo, Don Lemon Van Jones um, they will pull up a fact checklist if Trump is to say something also I'm not defending Trump I am not a Trump supporter in the least amount I am not a fan of that guy but they will point out like okay well Trump said this, that was a lie, that was a lie, that was factual, that was kind of shaky. They do that with all of the candidates. And they even do it with many of the Democratic candidates. But when they had the uh when they had um Biden, he blatantly lied and there was no there was no checklist. So my point being with all of this is that the news in many regards and many respects are kind of complicit in one, trying to mold and shape political opinion and political discourse. And secondly, shaping how you interface with the world around you. Because when you look at CNN, especially now with, this COVID-19 and this, the, the the social isolation in many states shutting down completely, unless it's for like essential goods or whatnot. When you look at the news now, the news is just so, so, I mean, just the fear is almost visceral in how they, they con- convey it to you. And who's to say that when June comes, that they'll lift this social isolation. Maybe it'll go on for another five weeks. Maybe this will become the new way of life. Maybe you will, we will have military roaming the streets. You know, I saw something creepy where, I think it was Bill Gates that proposed that, um, once the coronavirus vaccine is developed in order for you to travel, you would need to um get a certificate saying that you've had the uh coronavirus vaccine now granted, I mean there are certain places in the world where you go where you need to show that hey I've had these shots for you know to protect against malaria or what have you, or you know if you send your kids to school they want to know that they've been vaccinated with this or that and i'm not one of the anti-vaxxers because i do see the benefit in vaccines because you know and not too long ago if you go back to the 1800s it was nothing for a family to have to bury their children because of of smallpox or chickenpox or the measles or the mumps or any of these things that was a common occurrence and i think We kind of have a historical amnesia when it comes to that. So I'm not one of those. And even in New York state where, you know, there's definitely a plethora of anti-vaxxers. If you notice prior to this COVID-19 thing, that there was an influx of um, people suffering from measles again, something that, you know, could have, should have been stumped out at this point in the game. So it's kind of an increase in a spike in people suffering from measles. Um, so, you know, you just have to look at the media, like in in the sense of what's their objective, who's funneling the money through these various gigantic uh, media conglomerates. 1984 and 2020. Is that what's coming? I mean, are we going to live in a police state where you have to get vaccinated just to go to the next state? army tanks in the streets. I mean, yeah, they say, oh, well, well, they're here to help put up hospitals, but who's to say, what does this country look like a year from now or two years from now? And think about this, not only, not only about the financial costs, but what about the, 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 the psychological costs and the social costs of us not being able to come together, of us us not being able to interact. Another discussion, the government just signed a a $2.5 trillion uh, stimulus to help the economy and to help small businesses. But we were told many times that there's no money for reparations. That's a different podcast and a different topic and a different time that, you know, I'll definitely have to get into. But I want to remind y'all before I go, always protect your liberties, always speak the truth and always stay knowledgeable on your current political situation. So many of us aren't knowledgeable about our rights. Many of us do not know who our senators are. To be honest, many of us don't know who our local congressmen are. Make politicians work for your vote. If they want you to vote for them, make them work for your vote. Make your vote count. Hold their feet to the fire and voice and and talk to your politicians that you do not consent to the violation of your freedoms. You do not consent upon your privacy being infiltrated, whether it's by the NSA, whether it's by whatever particular party or entity. That's what makes this country great. That's what makes us free people That's what makes us individuals, creatives And the people that shape the culture That influences the world I want to finish with another George Orwell quote He states The choice for mankind Lies between freedom and happiness And for the great bulk of mankind Happiness is better Listen, this has been episode 27 of No Truths Bard, 1984 and 2020. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. And once again, make sure you're following me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hoyt, H-O-Y-T underscore Kaweku, K-W-K-A-U underscore Timmons, that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. Thank you. I love y'all. Please, please, please practice your social distancing, although I was just... Going in on it, please, 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 wipe down everything with your hands with your uh, disinfectant. Stay safe, stay inside. Um, prayers up, and uh, let's make it through this together as a country. I love y'all. I thank y'all for the support, and I'll see y'all again next week for episode twenty-eight. Much love, much respect, and peace.